In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about our key takeaways from MicroConf Europe 2019. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 469. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we made. So where this week, sir? Uh, not much. Just uh, working on my uh, security audit for Google. So that's... I was going to ask about that. That's kind of the running thread. I, I think in the next couple of weeks, we should get back a full updates episode, but talk, talk me through it briefly. Well, it started earlier this week, so I scheduled it for the week after MicroConf Europe because obviously I wasn't going to be here last week, so I didn't want to start it the week that I wasn't here because it's expensive. And uh, so we went through, had a kickoff call. They said, you know, which environments do you want? And then they asked, like, how much can your uh, server handle in terms of requests per second? <laughs> and I hesitated a little bit because I wasn't real sure what to tell them. It's like, on one hand, I want them to do a good job, but the other hand, I don't want it to fall over and die on itself. So I don't know. I said, try to be a little careful, but I should be all right generally. And if anything happens, just email me right away and be done with it. So <laughs> I just kind of turned them loose. Do you think it was a good call to do it immediately after MicroConf Europe? I know, I guess you flew back on Wednesday, I flew back on Thursday, but I was, it wasn't just jet lag, it's just that extrovert hangover of being around, you know, so many people, it's so amazing, and you, you want to stay up late, and you have a bazillion conversations, but then I find that, like, on the flight back, I'm completely worthless, basically, I can't do any work, and frankly, several days after MicroConf, I'm always just like, don't book anything, I, don't, I can't even, like, even doing phone calls is like, a real stretch for me. So did the, the fact that the audit started the week after, were you geared back up again by then? I was, but I didn't have all the stuff ready to go right away. So we ended up starting about a day late, but I think that was partially my fault because uh, there was an email that had come through that I didn't fully read absolutely everything in it. And it said, you know, reply to this email just to confirm that we're good to go on this date. And I'd confirmed it on the call, but then they followed up with an email afterwards just to verify. And I hadn't replied to that. So we ended up starting a day late, but there was a bunch of paperwork that I was still kind of working on to get over to them. So documentation, policies, procedures, that sort of stuff. And, but anyway, we really didn't start any too much later. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been you know, them saying, oh, well, our schedule is booked for the next three weeks, so you're going to have to wait three weeks. I'm glad that it didn't come to that. Yeah, that makes sense. From my end, I mean, really, you know, spent a week and a half in Dubrovnik. I guess it was, man, maybe it was like eight days. And the first part of that for several days was a second in-person tiny seed retreat and then rolled into MicroConf Europe and then I stayed one extra day just purely because I couldn't get a, a flight out at a good time. Uh, but that was nice to have that extra day. Most people were gone. And it was, you know, that view from that hotel is just amazing. As I think, I think if you were on Twitter and you saw any pictures and, and we'll try to, I'll even try to grab a picture and, and put it in the show notes here. It really is the nicest venue we've ever had a microconf at ever in any, in either continent. It's just there's something about being that close to water. It's the Adriatic Sea and there are boats out there and there are people scuba diving. And with Tiny Sea, we did a, a kayak trip, although I couldn't go out there because I was busy writing my talk. But it really is just this kind of, it's amazing to be in the venue and you watch it talk and then the break starts and the curtains open and you're just looking out on the sea. You know, and it's this feeling of like, oh, we're not trapped in this conference room for six or seven hours today. We are in the conference room intermittently between walking out on this deck 
you know, and hanging out in the sunlight and and listening to seagulls and that kind of stuff. So it really is this this very unique venue that we found. Did you get to uh, go swimming at all or no? I had time to swim. I don't particularly love swimming in cold water. And it wasn't that cold, but it was it was cold to me. So I'm from California and I like hot tubs and I like warm swimming pools. So no, I sat there and waved at people and took pictures at folks, you know, while they swam and they, because they were like, yeah, I want to prove that I was in the Adriatic Sea and stuff. But I did not get up in the actual water past my knees. I did get in last year. I mean, this was for listeners. This is the second year we've done it at the same venue. And, you know, I got in last year. How about you? I went twice. I was planning on going a third time just before I left, but then I realized that if I went swimming just beforehand, then it was probably going to be an issue because all my stuff would have been, you know, all wet. And I just didn't want to make it all wet with uh, seawater and then get on a plane and have it like, because I, I, I would have had to put it in like a plastic bag or something like that. I'm like, no, nah, I just don't want to do that. So 20 hours of flying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we definitely got a lot of, a lot of positive feedback about the venue. It was interesting. There were more first timers there than usual this year. And I'm not sure what to make of that. I think it was, well, there were also more, just more attendees than we've had at most microconf Europe's. It was, I, I think between 130 and 140. And Folks were basically saying, you should do it here again next year. That, that was the overall consensus that I heard. I don't think I heard anyone say, you know, because normally we move it every two years, right? We did Prague for two years, Barcelona two years. We only did Lisbon for one due to issues with the hotel. And then we've done it two years in Croatia. So next year we would think about moving it. But I, I think people, folks were kind of saying, nah, do it here another year. Is that what you heard as well? For the most part, I did hear one or two people say that we should have it in very specific places. And I asked if they lived there and they said yes. So, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. If you, if that's actually, if you recommend a city, I'm always like, great. Do you live there? Cause then I completely discount it. Like, if you don't live there, then recommend it. Cause everyone, it's going to be one vote for every city everybody lives in. Right. And then we're just going to go to the place with the most, the most attendees from that. So, yeah, the interesting thing about doing it in, in Dubrovnik again is, I mean, the only real drawback for me is it's hard to get to, right? I have, even for Minneapolis, which is, has a, is a Delta hub, I have to do three flights. I have two stops and it takes me 17 hours each way. And it's not that far. Like I can get to Heathrow in London. It's like an eight hour flight tops direct, you know? So like, it's not that Europe is that far. It's that it's these three hops with the gaps between and customs and all this and that. But aside from that, it's not the end of the world. If you're in Europe, I've heard it's actually pretty easy to get to. So I'm willing to discount that. But the other thing that has me concerned is we do it in shoulder season because the hotel is like a five-star hotel. It's like what? 250, 300 euros a night during the main part of the year, during the high season. But when we do it, I think it's like 120 euro a night. It's way, way less expensive. But as a result, the risk of having a bunch of rain is higher. And both years we've dodged it. And within two or three days after we left, it just started pouring rain most of the days and kind of storming. And so that's my one concern with doing it next year is do we get, do we roll the dice again a third time? Well, we have had it in Vegas for a long time. I mean, I, th I feel like rolling the dice is sort of real par for the course. I mean, we do run businesses too. So eh, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you, rest. I, yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that, but with, you know, running your own business, like you actually have some measure of control, maybe false illusion, but you do feel like you have control with the weather totally out of, out the window, literally and figuratively. <laughs> someone pointed out, I said that to someone the other day and they said, how bad would it be if it was raining outside? Would that ruin the event? And I was like, no, I guess it wouldn't. It would just be different. You know, it wouldn't be as you, uh, the, the evening events would have to be indoors, but we'd still have the view of the ocean. And frankly, a stormy ocean is pretty cool. You know, that, that view is cool. So I actually think even if it rained, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, I totally agree. Sounds good. So no verdict yet. We are still, we're actually still getting survey responses from the attendees about all myriad of things, the talks and the venue and all that stuff. So news to come on that in the future once we've figured ourselves out. But today we wanted to walk through a handful of the talks, talk through some key takeaways that, that you and I took away from, from these talks. We never have time to go through all the talks. We had nine speakers and eight attendee talks. So with, with 17 different talks, there's just no chance we could fit it into an episode like this. But we do handpick uh, a few of the talks that we feel like, you know, had the most comments or, or the most positive feedback or just that had, you know, really interesting takeaways. So the first talk we're going to talk about is uh, from Peldy Gilzoni of Balsamic, and he is a multi-time microconf speaker, and he kicked off the conference with his talk, Victories and Tragedies, The Three-Year Journey Building Balsamic Cloud. And Balsamic has traditionally been a, you know, a desktop app when Peldy built it, but they basically wanted to move it into the cloud. And part of his description of the talk was, build a SaaS app, they said. It'll be great, they said. It turns out running an online service is a big pain in the SaaS. What did you take away from his talk? The biggest takeaway I had was when he was talking about the data loss and I guess somebody had run something and it started deleting a bunch of customer data and they didn't realize right away, but it started deleting it very, very rapidly. And they noticed it. I think I forget how long he had said it had been running for. It was like six or eight hours or something like that before they noticed it. And it already had deleted a ton of data. And his advice for that was don't have anything in production that's going to delete a lot of data all at once. Have it sparsed out over like a long period of time, like 30 days or 60 days or something like that. And that way it will at least get deleted eventually, but you have more time to interject yourself into the process because I think he'd said it got about 20% done before they had noticed it and were able to do anything. And if that time period were longer, then they would have had more time to, to notice it and do something about it. Although I would kind of question whether or not over that time period, are you going to notice it? Like what sorts of controls or things do you have in place, especially for like a new app that you're building and trying to figure out things as you go? Like you're probably not putting every single safety precaution in place that you probably should. And would it be something that you would notice over a longer period of time or not? Yeah, that was my the most memorable part of the talk for me as well. And it was partly just because how devastating I know that would feel. And he said in the talk where they deleted, I believe it was 1,200 or 1,600, I forget which number, of kind of mock-ups. So if you don't know Balsamic, you can mock up a web page or you can mock up a user interface or whatever. And so across hundreds, if not more than a thousand customers, they deleted 12 to 1600 of these workspaces in essence. And my favorite part about it was when he said, I turned to my co-founder or my wife and I said, well, this is it. We sure had a good run. And he was basically implying like, we're done. This will kill Balsamic. Like that was how bad it felt. And it turns out that wasn't the case at all. There were a few pissed off people. Most people didn't care. I think a bunch of them wound up being like kind of the example, example mock-up or whatever. But just when you hear a story like that, I've never had that much. I've never done, had a mistake that big, but where we lose data, but I have had mistakes where, oh, we accidentally send double the emails to, you know, this whole list or, you know, via a bug, or we accidentally didn't send these emails and they were delayed by two hours and this person's doing a launch. And that's how it feels at the time. It feels like this is unbelievable and this is catastrophic, you know, and it's not going to fix itself. And in retrospect, because it was like three years ago, I think he said, two or three years ago. And so, you know, they obviously recovered from it. And frankly, I didn't even know it wasn't, I'll say it wasn't that big of a deal in the sense that I hadn't even heard about that, you know, so it wasn't like it got wildly publicized and people were on Twitter just railing on him or anything. 
I feel like you and I could probably do an episode at some point on like the worst engineering mistakes that we made that nobody noticed, like sending double emails to people and things like that. Because I think you and I probably both have a couple of pretty good stories about it. Although I don't know if, you know, we could both share them. <laughs> You're, I know. It's like <laughs> we definitely have stories. And some of them were back when I was an engineer and then others were just the drip team, you know, just bugs sinking through because you're shipping software fast. But so anyways, no, that was that was a, a good piece of Pelly's talk. But overall, the talk was the three years that it took them to build and deploy this and the starts and the stops and the highs and lows. And I always love a good a good founder story. And he did a good job of having takeaways. You know, it wasn't just a story, but it was kind of this is what we learned from that. And this is, you know, if you're in the same place, this is what you can do as well. Something else I noticed that was in his talk that caught my eye, which was something I wish I had found out a lot earlier than I did, which was have like a small dashboard that allows you to do different things for like your early access customers. So for example, having a button there that just simply allows you to click on it and allows you to say, reset the trial for this particular customer or delete this customer outright just because, you know, they're, they're gone and they're not going to use it, or they just need to reset everything up because everything got completely screwed up and it needs to be blown away and restarted. I think those are the things that are simple enough to overlook, but also important enough that you're probably going to run into them time and time again. And by the time you need it, it's kind of a pain in the neck to just say, okay, well, yeah, let me whip this up for you. And it takes like eight or 12 hours of work to do all that stuff. And then the next customer comes along and then you have to do it again. And you may or may not have sat down and taken the time to think through all the different things that need to be done for that. So just seeing that as like, I think there were four different buttons he had on there. And one of them was restart trial. One was delete the account. And there were a couple of other ones. I forget what they were, but it was a very simple sounding piece of advice, which if you've gone through the process a number of times before, it seems obvious, but in retrospect, it may not have been at the time. Yeah, it reminds me of, well, it's kind of every admin console I've ever built or had built for a SaaS app, but I, I like that Peldy went through it. I almost wanted to, I kind of wish I had a screenshot of the drip admin dashboard, which we called faucet because faucet drip. Yes. Pun, oh, water. God. Yeah, right. you didn't get it. <laughs> that was what oh. I called it. Oh. And it was... <laughs> Oh, it's a microcrumb joke. I mean, it literally was called that, but, and, and we had all these buttons. And, and I remember early, early, early on, I would say, Derek, we need someone, we need to restart someone's trial. And he would go into the Rails console and he would do, it was, a, everything was a state machine, right? So he would say like, you know, set it back to this state. But after I asked him to do that two or three times, he's like, there's now just a button on every user record. Just click that. And all it does is change the state machine, you know? And there were a bunch of things. So I actually wish I had a screenshot of it handy. I'm sure I can go back and get one. But my joke would be actually that he just didn't want to talk to you. So he made a button so you could do it yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's not a joke. That's an actual reality. No, it just became it became more efficient. And we had a bunch of buttons like that eventually. And we had to, it's just something you run into, you know, as, you, as you're running an app. So the next talk we'll talk about is from Irina Nika. Uh, she works for HubSpot. And her talk was... It was kind of an SEO, it was a little bit about SEO, but it was, uh, the title was How to Build Buzz and Backlinks on a Bootstrapper's Budget. And it was more about getting inbound links. It was off-page optimization. And we also had a, a talk that was more about the on-page stuff. So th this is cool because Irina, like every day, this is what she's thinking about. You know, like this is what she does full-time. She has a team that does it and HubSpot's really good at this. And so to hear her run through kind of the, the key things to think about if you're going to take this approach coming from from someone who is an expert in the space, uh, you know, I appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, she has had some really great advice on doing like podcast tours and guest posts and really talked about the process of getting backlinks in a way that looks organic, even though like you have to work at it. I mean, there's, there's a couple of different strategies to do it. One is just kind of 
throw your website out there and hope that people link to it, and which I think is what Google kind of expects people to do, but it just doesn't work. So you really have to be proactive about it and find ways that are are going to be useful to other people to get them to link to your site. So whether it's tools or you do a podcast tour and as part of that, like you get links back to your site because people are linking to your profile or your website or what have you, or even just doing guest posts where you are literally writing and then you have like in your byline, you can have something there that says, hey, click over here for more information about what I do or what we do. Or even if there's just resources that you provide to them that they can link back to if on your website. So all of those different things kind of add up. And over time, what you're really looking for is for things to go up and to the right in terms of the number of backlinks. I also liked how she had this kind of internal dashboard that they used to figure out what the terms were that people were linking back to the websites that she was working on. I thought that that was pretty ingenious because there was a, it was basically a Google spreadsheet that she had up there and it would basically parse the HTML. Was, I think it was a parse XML function or something like that, but it would look for certain key terms on the websites that they were linking to, uh, that were linking back to them. And I thought that was a really cool hack, which I don't think I've seen before. Yeah, they've taken what is often done as kind of a haphazard effort of of trying to build backlinks, and they've they've really systematized it. You know, they've turned it into a, a repeatable system, and at their scale, with a team working on it, that's kind of what you have to do. So it was it was it was an interesting insight into how that's done. And SEO has gotten, you know, from ten years ago, it's gotten a lot harder. But in certain as- elements or in certain ways, it's it's almost like there's less competition because there's less people doing it because it did get so hard. And so if you're able to execute on getting backlinks and getting high quality backlinks, like you can really move the needle uh, today in a way that I think when I think 10 years ago, it was easier to move the needle if you were willing to just buy links and do gray hat stuff or black hat stuff. But I, I think that, you know, the tide has really has shifted and I think we'll to continue to move around under our feet all the time, right? Because it's Google and they just kind of do what they want to. So No. I know. <laughs> you have no exposure to that, do you, Mike? No experience with that. None whatsoever. Yeah. So the other thing we did is at every microconf, we tend to have this 30, 35 minute slot where we do something experimental. And sometimes it like, you know, it was it was a QA with Jason Freed at MicroConf Growth last year. And that wasn't experimental as much as it was just this slot that kind of comes together very last minute. Or we've done a, we did a panel a few years ago in MicroConf Europe. And this year you did an AMA. And I kind of couched it. The interesting thing is I, you know, I don't know, what was it? 40% of the people were new, maybe 50% new in the room. And I didn't want to assume that everyone knew your story or anything. So I started the first five minutes and basically talked about the years of MicroConf and your history with, uh, with the podcast. And then blue tick and where you were at and how, you know, you're not happy with it. It's not supporting you full time. And then we kind of kicked in and people asked you anything. And I, I was, I was pleased with the range of questions that you received. I love how you kind of position it as like this 30 to 40 minute slot where we try something experimental. And usually it's we have it blocked off for something and we decide at the last minute that it's not a good idea. And then uh, and then somehow I end up in that slot. <laughs> <laughs> it has happened before. Yep. We don't want to do this. Mike, quick, fill in. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, I, I was a little concerned about the not concerned. Concerns is probably not the right word, but I was, I was a little worried about whether 
the context of the questions that were going to be asked was going to be relevant to uh, some of the newcomers, especially if they hadn't listened to the podcast or been following along with the story. So I think you gave a, a great summary of that. But there were some really interesting and challenging questions that came up. And I don't know, I mean, you were in the audience, so you would have a better handle on how it came across because I haven't seen the video. And that's actually something else we didn't talk about before at the beginning of the episode is we recorded this series of talks this year at MicroConf Europe, which is not something that we've done in the past. Yeah, that's right. This is the first time I believe we've we've had a professional photographer at a microconf. So we got some good stills, and then this is the first time we have video, you know, recorded the the Europe one. So that will be interesting to watch your AMA because yeah, I was in the audience, but I was running around with a microphone, and so I was definitely paying attention, but I was also distracted, looking for the next hand to come up. And I mean, there were there were fascinating questions about blue tick. It was like, how can we in the audience help you? And, you know, at one point there was someone asked you, like, how it is that you managed to keep going. And I think they were asking for themselves, right? They're like, we all get discouraged. We know that you're going through a tough time. Like, I, I believe the guy said, so am I, or so have I been, you know, at different times. And how is it that you stay motivated to, to keep going? And that was a thing, you know, honestly, AMAs, can, especially live, can be hard if you get hard questions. And I felt like you did get a couple hard questions. It wasn't people trying to be mean at all, but it was just honest questions of like, how do you keep going, Mike, you know, even through all this? And I thought your, your answers were clever. Like you were kind of at your best in this, in this thing. So I think once these videos come out, like, you know, you should watch this AMA because you were, you were making jokes and your answers, I felt like were just really honest. I didn't feel like you sugarcoated or, or BS your way through them. No, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, it was, I, I did feel like the vast majority of the questions were, I don't want to say easy answer, but they felt relatively straightforward and I felt comfortable answering them as opposed to previous situations where I've been up on stage and either been asked questions and I'm just like, I haven't really thought about this and kind of being put on the spot in terms of what I'm going to give as an answer or how I want to portray it. And I was just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just up here and I'm comfortable being up here. So let, I'll just answer them in the best way that I I can with the knowledge that I have. And if I hadn't thought about it, then I just kind of say that it's like, I don't really know yet. And I rounded out the first day with my talk lessons from the field, five proven strategies for faster SaaS growth. And it was interesting coming up with this talk because in the past, I have typically looked back at the prior year. I've said, what have I done? That was hard. What have I done that I learned? and try to write a talk around it. And it's basically, I tell a story and I try to pull the takeaways that I think people could apply to their business. And that's that's a formula that has worked for me. And at this point, I'm not doing that anymore, right? I, for me to talk about building tiny seed, it just, I, it's it, it doesn't make sense to apply that to SaaS apps. So what I did instead is I talked to most of the companies in the first tiny seed batch, got, got their permission to basically share high level info about what they've been up to. Cause we're almost, we're approaching halfway done with the first year. And there's a bunch, there's an interesting like information advantage in essence that I have in that I'm no longer working in one startup. I am seeing the inner workings, including the, the financials and the day to day and see what they're doing of across 10 startups plus my investments. I have another, you know, there's another 10 angel investments and I know I'm not working with those as day to day, but I really do start to have a, a view that is, is differentiated from someone working on a single company. So I'm seeing trends and I'm seeing things that three, four, five people in the batch are all doing and I'm seeing how it's working for them. And so that's, that's how I wrote the talk. I literally took five things with permission that people in the batch are doing successfully and unsuccessfully. And I didn't just say, 
they're doing cold email, right? Or they are, there are more people removing credit card or going freemium. But I then dug into why I think that's working and when I think that's working. And I talked about if you're in this type of vertical versus that, I don't think you should do cold email. And so that was, that was the gist of the talk. And generally I felt like it, it came off well. It's, I, when I get up on stage, I'm always like, first time I've done a talk, I don't know how this is going to go. Even though I've, re- I've rehearsed it five, six times in a row in real time, it's not until I get up there that I really know how it feels. Yeah, I think it was a really good talk. And I'm, I I think if I were to kind of rephrase the or reframe kind of what you had said about your your standpoint on it, it's almost like when you're building your own startup, you've got this silo of information and you're only privy to what's there. And the position you're in now is within Tiny Seed, you've got access to five or you know 10, 10 of these silos simultaneously versus previously you were looking at one silo and then you move on to a different startup, you look at a different one. But because the timeframes are different, it's not always easy to correlate lessons from one to the next. Whereas right now you're seeing them across all of them at the same time and you can use that to extrapolate what is and isn't working. Whereas there's very few other people who would really kind of have that insight or knowledge or ability to be able to analyze that information. Other people would have to be limited by like not just their own information, but by the virtue of working in their startup. Whereas you're a little bit removed from it, not completely removed, but a little bit. So you can see what's going on and then think about the implications versus those startup founders have to look at their own stuff and what they're doing. Yeah. And the other thing that I did that I I enjoyed is I had just gotten back a handful. I guess I had maybe 20 or 30 of them at the time, but it was um, the initial rough graphs from the state of independent SaaS survey that we did through MicroConf last month. So I, I had these graphs, they're bar graphs embedded in Excel, and they're they're accurate. They just don't look great. You know, they're very plain. But I had pieces of those that I could share, and I believe I shared maybe four or five throughout the talk. And that felt good, too, to have some type of data. And I wasn't trying to use them to say, oh, this is working. Look at these graphs. It was more like this is added context, you know, of I'm super surprised at how many companies are are not asking for credit card before their trial. Like we, ha- we have numbers on that now for more than a thousand non-venture track SaaS companies. And so I included that in the part where I talked about, there were specific examples of, of tiny seed companies doing this. And then I brought in like the higher level of like, hey, there's more than a thousand that responded and they're kind of doing it too. So this is an interesting trend. Let's keep our eye on it. Another talk that I, I think went over well was Craig Hewitt's talk. And it was staying on top of your SaaS metrics, knowing what to measure and what not to, to help maintain sustainable growth. What was your takeaway from Craig's talk? One of the things that I liked that he drew attention to was the fact that he looks at his own metrics every day. And there's a lot of different schools of thought on whether you should look at them on a daily basis or not. Because if you look at them every single day, then it's probably going to be distracting and you're possibly spending too much time on it. But he obsesses about his revenue on a day-to-day basis. And some people are like, oh, only look at it once a week or once a month. And he said that it almost doesn't matter how often you look at it as long as you're actually on the right track. Because if you're going off track, then obviously something's wrong. But, you know, there is a certain amount of personal value that he places on looking at it every single day, whereas somebody else is looking at it every week. And it's not right or wrong either way. It's what you are most comfortable with. And I think that the correlation he drew between certain KPIs and saying, look, these things don't matter nearly as much on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis as these other ones. I think that was an important point to make. 
the other thing that I liked about what he did was he talked about the different phases of the uh, the customer journey and how you ne- really need to concentrate some of your marketing on where people are in those. So, for example, he, for the Castos, he talked about new podcasters and how people you know who want to start a podcast but don't really know where to begin. They're problem aware. But then there's other people who don't even really understand that they have a problem. So like it makes a difference as to like what it is that you're building for marketing materials or the types of people that you're that you're targeting for the pieces of marketing collateral that you're putting together. Yep. I like this talk quite a bit. And I like the way he looks at metrics. If he had his rules of thumb. And of course, I'm comparing my mental rules of thumb to, you know, to his as he was doing it. And he, he has a very metrics-driven approach. And it reminds me of my approach, you know, of, of how I've built and grown SaaS apps and so it resonated with me in, in his thought process of, hey, here's how to get in, here's how to look at the numbers, and, and here's how to grow. Here's how to grow an app that if you're charging 500 a month, 1000 a month, and those are your bottom end prices, you don't tend to do a bunch of split testing. You know, you don't tend to do these big number, oh, I need to look at my churn number. Because when you only have 20 or 30 customers, like one of them churning is this huge number, but it's an anomaly because you just don't have the law of large numbers going. Whereas when you're building a service that is that, whatever, it's the 20 to $100 lowest price point, and you're in the 10 to 100K a month or up, you just have a lot of customers. And that's where looking at these things in aggregate and having these rules, rules of thumb is really you know, helpful for optimizing your funnel. And so that's, that's what he was talking through. And the last talk of MicroConf Europe 2019 was Shai Schechter. He's the co-founder of Right Message with Brennan Dunn. And his talk was called Right Message Year One from a $75,000 launch week to virtually bankrupt to product market fit. And I enjoyed his talk as that, you know, it was a tale of going through it. And he was pulling out these kind of actionable things, the mistakes they made, things he felt like other people could apply. What did you think about it? I think that it was not obvious from somebody being on the outside of that company what like a dire situation they were in probably, I don't know, I, I'm not sure exactly of the time frame. It was like uh, probably about a year ago, it seemed like, where they were burning through money a lot faster than it was coming in and their churn was really high and they essentially had to put the brakes on and say, okay, like this is a problem. Our churn is so high that we're bleeding customers faster than we're getting them and we don't have enough money coming in to cover all of our expenses anyway, which, you know, if you've got some level of funding, that's fine, but you still need to bridge that gap at some point. And they were actually deviating from from bridging that gap. They were going away from it rather than closing it. And it was interesting to see that they had a bunch of different options to try and they had to use all of them. And it doesn't sound like it was a pleasant experience in any way, shape or form, but they were able to do it and they were able to essentially save the company and continue moving forward. And and that's not really something that I've ever gotten or seen from their company. And I think it's just interesting to see it laid out on the table like that, which is kind of what you'd expect to see at a microconf talk. I don't, there's, there's not too many other conferences I've been to where somebody will lay out the company troubles and say, yeah, we almost completely went under. And if it weren't for this, these things that we did, like we would have. Right. And I think I, what I appreciated is again, he didn't sugarcoat it. He talked about how hard it was and he talked about where they made mistakes and he talked about what he would do differently in the future. So it wasn't this, Hey, look, we survived. And, and isn't this his amazing success story? He was still like, yeah, and we're not done. You know, we're doing better now, but it's not like this is a 100% complete Cinderella story now. And we ride off into the sunset. There's still a lot of hard work and a lot of stuff going on. So 
I enjoyed that talk. And then we headed off to watch the sunset from, from Vala Beach, which is attached to the hotel. And uh, overall, I really enjoyed this year's event, not just because the weather was amazing and not just because I got to, well, I got to meet a lot of new people which is cool, but I also got to see the, the returning folks, you know, the Christophs and the Benedicts and all the other people. I'm not going to name them because then I'll forget somebody, but just folks that I haven't seen. You know, a lot, some folks are on kind of the every other year schedule and we hadn't seen them for a couple of years. So it was cool to settle back in and just, you know, see old friends, make some new ones. And I appreciated everybody, everybody who came. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's always great to catch up with those people in person that, you know, you catch them online or through Twitter or something like that. But it's just it's very different being in the same room and talking to them. And, you know, we really appreciate everybody coming out to MicroConf, regardless of whether it's in Dubrovnik or Minneapolis or Vegas. It's always great to just, you know, come together with the other people in the community and talk business and, you know, catch up on personal lives. Because I, I really feel like there's a lot of that, too. It's not just the business aspect. It's like meeting other people and learning about them, their their journey and their struggles and the family and what's going on uh, kind of throughout their whole lives. So it's just nice to have those connections and make those friends and uh, revisit them every year. We also upped our Twitter game this year, and I know you didn't see it because you're not on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> we were, you know, we had uh, Tracy Osborne was there helping out, and she was taking a, a picture of every speaker that got on stage and tweeting that out. And then I was actually doing video interviews on my phone. So I got this cool little attachment that just plugs right into the iPhone. Is it the lightning port, I think is what it's called. And and this mic is, it's a directional mic. So it's really high quality sound, even though you're just filming w with an iPhone. And with the iPhone 11, I just got like the video quality was really high. So it was nice. I was just doing kind of behind the scenes interviews and just throwing that up on Twitter as well. And it's something we haven't done in the past, really haven't haven't had the time or the bandwidth, to be honest, because it's pretty intense to run the event and then to also try to do that. But that was pretty fun. And I, I enjoyed it. And I feel like we got more, there was more of a groundswell around this event, I think there were there were more pictures posted by us. And I think there were also by the attendees. And it kind of led to this, this social, you know, social media momentum, mostly on on Twitter. But that's a good thing. And it's something I hope, you know, we can continue to do such that even if you aren't able to make it, that you still do get some concept of, of what the experience is like, and you do know what's going on at different times of the day. And, and it's just nice to, you know, to be able to do that and include more than just, the, you know, 150 or 250 or, you know, however many people can, can show up in the room. If this sounds interesting and, you know, you've never attended a microconf or you're not on the mailing list, you should head to microconf.com. Any your email, we don't email that much. We just email to let people know, hey, there's an event coming up or a state of independence has survey. Um, you know, it's it's not an overwhelming volume of it, but we, we're going to continue to double down on microconf as we head into the new year. If this all sounds like fun, you should be in the know. And that wraps us up for today. If you have a question for the show, leave us a voicemail at 888-801. 9690 or email us questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from our Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You can subscribe to us in any podcatcher. Just search for startups. And if you want a full transcript of this episode, wait a week or two after it's posted and head to startupsfortherestofus.com for that transcript. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.